Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 113, Que Vamos a Hacer, Panama, where Caleb brought a stranger to church. The stranger was me. So, Caleb, my first question, can you describe what you look like for the listeners? Give them a picture of who they're listening to. Uh, I am about 30 years old, and I have brown hair, which is short. My wife just gave me a haircut yesterday. I have blue eyes. Kind of a little scruffly, like bristly beard that was recently trimmed down. And I'm six foot three. Light skinned. Very good, perfect. (laughs) So, next. Uh, Can you describe where we are right now and the strange circumstances circumstances that brought us together? (laughs) So, we are in my car uh, on the road driving. Uh, I just picked you up at the airport and we are in Panama City, Panama. We are on our way to see the Panama Canal. And I still can't believe it because we met on Twitter. Right, we met on Twitter, so I've never I've never met you before in person. We met on Twitter and I think if I remember correctly, you recommended your podcast to me. I did on yes, Twitter. Yes. And I actually went to your website and started listening to one of the podcasts and I immediately when I saw the podcast I thought it was a cool idea Um, I love to travel and it was kind of an intriguing thought you know just hearing travel stories from around the world Um, and then we kind of you know I think either you or me asked it would be cool if we did an interview and then I was like yeah that'd be awesome and you're like well I'm coming to Panama I have a layover on this day Maybe we can meet in person, and then I kind of forgot about it, and then I wrote you back and just to, to make sure you were still coming, and you were, and so then I said, hey, I'll pick you up at the airport, and we can hang out for you know a few hours before you have to get on your flight, so. It's just uh, too good to be true. <laughs> so, yeah, I periodically, you know, just search for people uh, that might be interested in the podcast and recommend it to them. But then when you responded, I looked at your blog and I saw you have quite a story going on right now. Like you're in the midst of a great travel story, exactly the kind that I love to hear about. So can you explain that? What? <laughs> so you're obviously, uh, you don't have a Panamanian accent. So how did you end up here? Where are you from and how did you end up here? So I'm from the United States. I uh, spent most of my life as a child in the United States and a good amount of it in the state of Illinois. Um, When I was 13 years old, my family moved to the Dominican Republic for a year and that was uh, to do mission work. And so really that that trip was the first uh, overseas trip that really impacted me and, and really changed my life forever. I learned how to speak Spanish, and I started to really appreciate and just love the Hispanic 
agriculture. And um, after that year, we came back to the United States. I went to high school in the Chicago area. Um, ended up going to Trinity International University for college, and I met uh, a woman who became my wife freshman year. Her name's Claudia, and um, she actually came from Panama. She's, she's originally from El Salvador, but she had been living in Panama, and she came to Trinity as an international student. And so we ended up getting married um, a couple years after I graduated. And originally when we got married, we were planning to move to Panama because um, my wife's family lives here in Panama and uh, they have a business. Her dad has a business and also they have a church here in Panama. And we were, you know, wanting to come down and just look for jobs and kind of get involved in what was going on here. Um, but then God kind of put a, I don't know, a, a detour in our path and we, um, while we were engaged, we discovered this opportunity to work at a small um, Bible school in, based in Iowa. And so we we saw the opportunity, we applied, we went, we both went, interviewed, and actually we both were hired um, to work at this small Bible college. It's called um, In-State Bible College. <clears throat> and so we actually spent the first six years of our marriage in Iowa um, working at this Bible college, which is a distance education program that has, uh, the curriculum has been translated into many different languages, and um, it has um, students that study all throughout the world. And so that's part of why we were so interested in working there, because of the, kind of the global focus. Um, and a lot of our students, even in the United States, are Spanish-speaking. So I really, actually, my Spanish really improved at my last job, because every day I was speaking in Spanish, and, you know, talking on the phone in Spanish, writing newsletters in Spanish, because everything we did at Instate was always bilingual English and Spanish. <clears throat> and then how we got here was uh, we had our second child in Iowa and we really wanted to be close to family. So that meant either we were going to move to Chicago, where my parents live, or we were going to move to Panama, where my in-laws live. <laughs> quite a set of options yeah and so we prayed and we applied for jobs I actually had an interview on the same day uh, one for a job at Moody Bible Institute downtown Chicago yeah. and the other for a job here in Panama at Crossroads Christian Academy um, just three days after the interview I got offered the job here in Panama never heard back from the people at Moody until like a month later um, which they they wanted to do a second interview but by that time I had already decided we were moving here so um, yeah, so we just kind of felt like God, you know, opened up that, that door at this school. Um, it's an excellent opportunity to come and work at a Christian school, um, teaching social studies, which is something I love to teach, and also just teaching. Um, for me, teaching is something that I discovered that I love to do after college, and so I don't have a teaching degree, but um, the school that I work at has in a, in a it's part of a, a group called uh, ACSI, Association of Christian Schools International, and they have a way for you to get certified as a teacher as long as you have enough um, undergraduate credits in the subject area that you want to study, you can get a, a teacher certificate with them. So I have that, and um, so I just finished my, well, I just started my second year actually teaching here in Panama at Crossroads Christian Academy. So that's kind of the, the short version yeah. of how we ended up here in Panama. So let's dig in a little bit. Uh, tell me what it's like to move a family overseas. <laughs> like, how did your kids 
handle that? Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, my daughter was uh, two years old when we moved, and my son was just six months old. Wow. So he was very small, you know, wasn't walking yet. Um, it was really hard in a lot of ways, honestly. Um, had it not been for my mother-in-law and father-in-law, it would have been even more difficult. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, thankfully, you know, when your kids are so little, they're very moldable and adjustable. So I think for them, the transition really wasn't that hard. Yeah. I think it was more for my wife and I that it was hard. Yeah. Um, just the cultural, the culture shock coming from Iowa, where there is no traffic um, and there is, you know, we're in a metropolitan area in Iowa of like 300,000 people coming to a city of about two and a half million. And we're um, driving through right now, maybe this isn't the center, but there's lots of uh, tall buildings yes, around, and yes. it looks like lots of development. Yes, there's, there was a huge boom here um, that happened. Okay, wow, yeah, we, yeah, there's a skyline ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we passed through already, but no. there's just more. That was more. just like the warm-up, yeah. Yeah, yeah so that this must is be a the shock. Main, this like, is the center here in front of us. Okay. Yeah, it was a shock, um, just the traffic and um, the pace of life, the busyness. Um, and then just, you know, doing simple things like going to the grocery store, going to the bank, stuff that, like, you would think would be really easy to do. Sometimes it's just more complicated than you think, especially yeah. with two kids, two little kids. Um, so, yeah, it was not easy, but I think one of the things that, that made it better was the fact that my wife and I are doing it together, you know, so we're both sure. very involved with our kids, doing everything we can to um, support each other in the process. Um, honestly, my school community has been really helpful. Um, so we live, actually our apartment is um, a school apartment. So we live with other teachers in our building. And so there were some people that were really helpful when we first moved here, just helping to get us settled. You know, our apartment is fully furnished when we arrived. So that just some of the things that we didn't have to worry about, you know, because of the school kind of like helping us get settled and stuff. Right. By the way, are you teaching international students or the uh, Panamanian? So it's about 30% um, missionary kids and then the rest are either Panamanian or from other countries. Okay. It's a, it's a, it's a really, um, it's not a, it's not a cheap school to go to so it's mostly wealthy family it's not like the most expensive school but it's definitely the, the the highest level in terms of christian schools you know it's all the teachers are basically brought down from north america and yeah tuition's pretty high and you're teaching in english yeah everything okay. is fully in english the only thing they have in spanish is um spanish and like you know government of panama or like stuff like that okay so do you feel like you're in really in Panamanian culture, or do you feel kind of in a bubble? A very bit? much in a bubble. Okay. Um, very, very much in a bubble. Honestly, I'm yeah. really grateful for um, the church that we go to, because it's all in Spanish, and it's much more connects us with like what's actually going on in, in, in Panama. Um, yeah. yeah, if it weren't for our church, um, we would have very, very little contact with I don't know, you know, just yeah, like, right. um, we're totally in a bubble. I mean, our neighborhood, there's a ton of foreigners um, from many different places. A lot of them from the U.S., a lot of missionaries. Um, 
so yeah, we're really in a bubble. And then my school, you know, it's everything's in English. All the teachers are from the U.S. and stuff. So yeah. So what, what's your sense of Panama? You, you've lived here for a year now. A year and two months. Okay. Yeah. My it's sense. A long time. Yeah. What, what's what, my sense? Yeah. What, what do you think of? Panamanian culture. I, I don't know anything about okay. Panama. I've only um, been through the airport a couple times. Okay, so. yeah, I really like Panama. Um, Panama City is an awesome place to visit. Um, I think it's a good place to live. Um, they've made a lot of improvements to the city over the past few years. They have a much better public transportation system now. Um, they have like a metro, so like a train system that's being expanded. They have um, some really cool green spaces, parks, um, good places to like take the family, great restaurants. Um, there are some challenges about the culture. I mean, the traffic is, is bad, which that's, you're going to get that in any big city. Um, but, um, I don't know, it's an interesting place. One of the things I love is the, in the diversity. So it's very, very diverse. Um, you have a really big Jewish community here in Panama City. You have, there's like 24,000 Muslim people that live here. Um, there's Hindus, there's people from all over the world that live and work here. Um, so I love that aspect of it. I think one of the things that's difficult here, and you get this in many places in the world, is there's some tension between Panamanians and the foreigners. Not, not so much the U.S. foreigners, but especially right now with the situation in Venezuela. Yeah. Um, it's a very hard situation for Venezuelans who are coming here. They're coming here by the thousands, but, you know, the country is, and it's kind of understandably so, you know, trying to put limits and not, I don't know, just kind of making it more difficult to enter the country as especially if you're from Venezuela uh, but not only from Venezuela many different places um, so there's some tension there um, between and one, one thing the government has done which I think it's good for the local people it's hard for foreigners is that they've made a law where basically every business has to have like 90% of their employees have to be Panamanians and so yeah so it's really as a foreigner it's hard to can be a lot harder to, to find work, at least legitimate work that's, that's you know, um, I don't know, legit, if yeah. that makes sense. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, they've done that just to, like, kind of protect the, the Panamanian people. Um, but, yeah, so... Yeah, that's interesting. I... Like I said, that's it's a similar situation in many places of the world where you have, you know, a lot of immigrants coming in who sometimes at least the perceived thing is is you know they're taking jobs and they're they're doing things like that that are hurting the local economy or the local people yeah uh, I interviewed a Venezuelan who moved to the to Chicago actually okay. um, his story was really interesting but just a few months ago I interviewed a woman in Argentina who actually fled to Venezuela. <laughs> From Argentina? From Uruguay, originally. Oh, but <laughs> when, did she, in, when did she do that? I think it was in the 70s. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and it startled me because I realized I've taken for granted that Venezuela is so unstable right now. 
but it wasn't always that way. Yeah. You know, it used to yeah. be the beacon for immigrants from all over Latin America. Wow, you know, that's interesting. Who came to enjoy the prosperity that they had there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's just interesting how things change so easily. Yeah, and, and I think that's a. I mean, that right there is the main reason most people come here. You know, there is there is a level of prosperity in Panama. Certainly, if you compare it to the rest of Central America. I would say it's a much higher standard of living, um, you know, it's a better infrastructure, um, maybe kind of comparable to Costa Rica, but, um, so yeah, a lot of Colombians come, a lot of people come just to work, you know, to try to make money and then either go back home or whatever, but there's a lot more jobs. Um, it hasn't really been affected as much by some of the, I don't know, like downturns of economies in other places. Um, yeah. It's maintained pretty pretty robust economy. So, uh, so th- this is my big question that I always ask: uh, How has it changed you living here after a year and two months? <laughs> it yeah. may still be too soon. To, yeah, uh, uh, say that. I mean we're in the process. You know, I feel like now that we've been here a year, we're finally starting to feel a little bit normal, a little bit stable. Like it's starting to feel like home. You know? Yeah. It was interesting in Iowa. I feel like it took like three or five years, three to five years before we actually felt like it was home. Yeah. And then after year six, we left. You know, so it's kind of hard. Like, but yeah, I think after a year, how has it changed me? Um, it's a good question. I guess I haven't thought about that a ton. Um, I think it has stretched me definitely. Like teaching was way harder than I thought it was going to be. Like my first year was really hard. Um, you alluded to that on your last <laughs> blog post. I was just uh, looking over it this morning. Uh-huh. Uh, but you didn't really go into detail very much. <laughs> Do you have any examples you feel comfortable Yeah, sharing? I honestly think part of what made it so hard was being married with young children. So just like my stage of life with my kids. like Yeah. Every weekend, I would spend hours, like literally like on Sundays, it would be like a dreaded thing, because I would know, okay, I have to have the whole week planned. I've got nothing planned. Yeah. And like, this is gonna take me, minimum like four hours. And you know, that's that's partly just me like wanting to like have all my ducks in a row and wanting to feel like I was prepared, you know? Like I could have spent less time and not, you know, just kind of been more like winging it type of thing. Yeah. Which as a teacher is usually not a good idea. Um, but anyway like you know so it was just I think that's part of what made it so hard was just like I'm taking time away from my family like you know they're basically my wife would just go to her parents house and I would just stay home for you know like four, five, six hours to plan like every weekend that's tough so yeah it was hard just like the time that I wanted to spend with my family like I wasn't able to and felt like I wasn't able to spend as much time with my kids as I wanted to Um, and in the beginning of the year it was even harder because I was just figuring out like how to lesson plan and stuff, and so it was taking me so long. Like I finally, I, I got better, you know, as the year went went on. But I was just like, man, like it just took me like two hours to plan one lesson for one class. I'm teaching three different classes, you know, <laughs> three preps. So it's like, so it was kind of overwhelming in the beginning. But um, I think that was part of what made it so hard was just the time commitment and just like the never the never endingness. Yeah. Whatever the word is, you know, because teaching never ends. You know, it's just okay. You plan that week, now you got to plan the next week, now you got to plan the next week, now you got to plan the next week. It just, it just never stops, you know. And then yeah. finally, you get like winter, Christmas break, or like summer break. So it's those breaks are like so so nice, you know, because <laughs> yeah. if it wasn't for that, I mean, it would be like torture. But 
So yeah, do you feel uh, committed to teaching still? I do. It's interesting. Like the beginning of this year, I had a lot of behavioral issues with my students, and I was like, man, this is like so hard. Like I don't know about this. <laughs> like I don't know. It just makes it hard as a teacher. But um, my school decided to switch some things around and split some classes, which now is making it a little bit um, more better, more manageable. And um, yeah, and I'm teaching this year, this is my second year, I'm teaching the same exact classes I taught last year, the same exact grade level. That so, helps a lot. Yeah, so I have all those lesson plans from last year. So my planning is so much faster. Um, I'm not spending nearly as much time. I know the material. I've gone through all the textbooks. You know, so, so that makes it a lot less stressful. And yeah, I would say I am committed to teaching. Um, we'll see how long, you know. Like, I could see myself at this school teaching for a long time um, for several years um, but I also feel really drawn to ministry in terms of like working at a church and that type of thing so we'll kind of see how God leads and directs um, things but I definitely enjoy teaching definitely could see myself doing it for a long time I really love like the challenge of it like I feel like there's always you can always get better as a teacher like you're always learning and I honestly see how like the more experience you get like the the better teacher, like you become a better teacher, like what because you because you see, like you start to learn like what works and what doesn't work, and you can compare like okay, like this lesson, this part of the lesson is good, this part of the lesson needs work, and so you tweak things. It's like you have kind of like that that experience to pull from, whereas. As a first-year teacher, you literally have no idea what you're doing, and you have no. And right. I think, and I see for me, that's why I think it's so important to learn from others. Like we have a new curriculum coordinator this year, and um, I've having her come and just observe me and give me feedback, and it's been great. Like just having another person with experience speaking into you, I feel like is so helpful as a teacher because if you don't expose yourself to other ideas and other people like you're you're not gonna be able to grow you know you're not gonna be able to see you can't see what you only see what you can see you know so like getting those other perspectives and like other um yeah just input from others is really helpful yeah absolutely uh last question about teaching uh you said that your purpose as an educator is to never stop learning how to help students learn better and mature in all the areas of their lives, something like that. Uh, can you talk more about that? <laughs> yeah, so I just, my dad just sent me, um, like, the excerpt to this book. I can't remember the name of it right now. I can look it up and tell you, but I read this little introduction that he sent me, and it was really interesting. It's a book about teaching, and, and one of the guy's main points was that, like, the best teachers are humble, and they realize that, like, they don't know everything, and they, they're, they're willing to learn from others and like they they never stop like learning they never like feel like they've fully arrived but they're constantly like open to like finding out how they can do their job better and I think that's so important and so crucial you know like if you come into the teaching profession thinking that you know it all or thinking that you have all the answers like it's gonna be hard for you this is my school awesome it's gonna be hard for you to you know um yeah, I don't know. It's just, it doesn't, it's not the best way to go about it. Um, yeah. So I guess just that lifelong learning to me, it's like having a posture of humility, like always trying to learn from others, being willing to like accept, like if someone, if my principal or someone says, hey, like this is something that you could do better or like have you thought about this, like 
being willing to listen to that. Um, and so that's that piece. But then in terms of, yeah, helping, like, always trying to help the students learn, it's like, I think that's just part of good teaching. It's like, okay, like, is this, is my teaching, like, actually helping kids learn or not, you know? And how much am I, like, I think a lot of times, like, as a teacher, the more passionate you are about something, like, that kind of opens up sometimes for students, like, that same interest or maybe, like, a desire to learn that wouldn't be there if you didn't have that passion. Um, and so I guess just finding, like, okay, what, what learning styles do my students have? How can I tap into those? You know, how can I provide learning experiences that reach different kids? You know, because every student is different. And so, like, looking for ways to really connect, you know, with the students. So, I don't know. I, I just wrote that purpose statement because I think I saw it. I think I saw it, like, on a blog or something. You should have a purpose statement for your teaching. So, yeah, that will probably change over time. But I for definitely, sure. definitely think the whole, like... Like, I know some people talk about the teacher, they don't call them a teacher, they call themselves, like, the leading learner, or, like, the lead learner, and I really like that terminology, yeah, um, yeah. because it, it puts it in perspective, like, hey, like, we're all on a journey, we're all learning, I don't have all the answers as a teacher, like, but rather I'm, like, a fellow learner with you, you know, and I really like that, um, that perspective, or that idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, when I read that, it gave me pause and made me realize I've never written, you know, purpose statement for my own teaching. Because you are so, a teacher, right? Like, that's your, yeah, yeah, that's your yeah, main thing. That's yeah. what I do. Okay, yeah. So, I've uh, been thinking about it since then. I haven't come up with my answer yet. But, but I think that's good to focus your thinking on a target, you know? Mm-hmm. Even if it changes over time. Right. So, just before we get to the canal, I, I want to circle back and hear just a little about the Dominican Republic as a... You were a teenager or 13, you said? Yeah, 13 years old. I mean, <laughs> so what, what impressions do you carry of those, like, first weeks arriving in a new country that your parents took you to? <laughs> yeah, so I really appreciate the way that my parents did it. Um, it was basically learning immersion um, you know I remember getting off the airplane getting in the car the guy talking to us and I had no idea what he was saying and my best friend was with me in the car and he's like he understood that he was asking like whether we spoke Spanish or not and it was like I mean, he, my friend basically said no but I didn't even understand that and so I was completely <laughs> lost didn't speak any Spanish um, yeah and so uh so you're saying that your friend understood what he was My asking. My friend understood at least the question that was being asked, and I had no idea. How quickly did you start to understand? I, I've never had that experience where in youth you, you do start to understand, not through like an explicit educational process, just... Yeah, well, I totally learned by immersion. Like, so... Literally the first weekend we were there. So we moved down with my family. I have one younger brother, my parents, me, my younger brother, and then my friend Josh and his whole family. So it was like two families moving down together. And our first weekend there, our parents say, okay, you guys are going to go to this camp. It's like this Christian camp. It's an overnight camp. And they just send us. Yeah, they just send us to this camp. None of us speak any Spanish. So we have no idea what's going on the whole time. Like literally we were just like totally lost, totally confused. Like, the first phrase I learned in Spanish was, 
¿Qué vamos a hacer ahora? Because I was just like... I was just wanting to know like what the next thing was and so that was it like vamos a hacer ahora like um and we ended up all of us after that time we called that place Camp Torture that was like our nickname for it so yeah and then you know really the way I learned Spanish was you know we went to this small kind of like homeschool international school thing for just four hours a day and then in the afternoons which was all in English. Yeah. And then the afternoons, we would just go play baseball, like, every day. We would go to the Catholic school and play baseball. Wow. And, uh, you know, no one there spoke any English, so yeah. we just had to learn. And then later on, after I had been there a while, I joined a basketball team, and I was the only, you know, gringo on the team, and no one spoke any English at all. So it was just in those situations, you know, like... Yeah. Not really understanding what was going on, probably, like, 80% of the time. But after about six months like I was able to pretty much communicate pretty effectively and we had a our ministry was to uh, like go around and do these presentations gospel presentations with drama and and then we would like share the gospel just uh, giving testimonies or preaching about the love of, of God and stuff and so after six months like our leader was like okay Caleb like it's your turn to give your testimony and no translator and so So I'm like 13 years old, you know, in this public school, just like, okay, like, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and the best I can in Spanish, you know. But by that time, I was, I knew enough to do that, you know, a simple, simple message. And so, um, yeah, I just have kept learning Spanish, like, since that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you think? Do we have five minutes to just stand outside the car and tell one last story? Yeah, man. Okay. (laughs) We're here. So, actually, I'll ask you to describe what we're looking at also. First. So, we're, uh, we're at the Panama Canal, and we are at um, the Pedro Miguel Locks. Okay. So, these are over to our left. You can see a ship coming through the locks right now. Yeah. Um, these are the original locks that were built um, when the canal was completed in 1914. Um, you can't see it, but on the other side, back that way, there's there's been an expansion of the canal. So they have a brand new lock system where they can fit massive ships. Um, but yeah, this is the free. This is the place where you can go watch for free. Yeah. Um, there's another place we have to pay. But yeah. there's a big ship over here to our right. Um, that's the Centenario Bridge. Okay. So that was the the second bridge that was built over the canal, and that was completed. I don't know, maybe like 15 years ago. But, yeah, so we're standing in front of the Panama Canal with a chain-link fence in front of us. It's pretty awesome. It's uh, smaller than I pictured. I don't know why. The other canal I saw was in Greece, uh, in, like, um, the Peloponnese. And you're way high up above, and the water's really far down below. It's like cliffs, almost. So they really dug it out but here we're right at I mean it looks like a river you know it's pretty yeah so this is the second set of locks there's another set down there so you know they're going they're raising them up and I think the highest level when they get all the way up is 26 meters above sea level wow and that's uh, Gatun Lake is basically a a massive man-made lake that that's basically what the ships do the locks take them up to that lake and then they go across and they come down wow wow so pretty awesome okay so uh Last question. Tell me a good story. <laughs> a good travel story? Good travel. 
Man, I guess I'll, I'll tell one from the Dominican Republic just because I think for me that, that time was the most significant travel of my life. I mean, I've done a lot of trips since then that have been important. But um, So I was there for my eighth grade year, and at the end of the year, so probably around like May or June, we, we were graduating. We had me and my best friend, a couple other boys that were the eighth graders so there's four of us and we did like a father-son trip and so we got in this we had a Daihatsu van or truck <laughs> with like the back was like it's like imagine like a big flatbed on the back with like seats yeah and yeah so I don't know if you've seen a Daihatsu truck but that's what it was and so we drove from Harabakoa where we lived and then we went up the into the mountains down to the south coast and then back around so it kind of like did a big loop and I mean, one thing I remember is just how beautiful it was. Like, um, the drive in the mountains, there were some places I had never seen before, and it was so beautiful um, just seeing, like, you know, these mountains, villages with the, the mist and all that kind of stuff. And then when we got down to the coast, all of a sudden we, like, see all these, like, people in the, in the road and, like, all these, like, burning tires and stuff, and people were doing some kind of protest or huelga thing. And so we start, like, driving a little bit closer, and then all of a sudden, like, these young kids come and start picking up rocks and just start chucking them at our Daihatsu. What? Yeah, so we were like, we didn't know what was going on. We turned around. <laughs> Thankfully, we didn't get hit by any rocks, but if you know anything about the Dominican Republic, they're, like, amazing at baseball, you know? So, <laughs> um, but thankfully, we didn't get hit by any rocks. We turned around. We escaped. We were okay. Um, and then we ended up going to a beach called Baraona, which is on the south, and... Um, we got to play like football on the beach which was really fun and um, we also went to a place called Lago Enriquillo which is in the south of kind of close to the border with Haiti and they have we saw flamingos we went out to like an island on the lake and it's a really it's like a salt water lake it was really hot it was like the driest place I've ever been in the, in the Dominican Republic not the driest place I've ever been but yeah. it's much different the climate is way different from what, what I was used to it was really dry and hot but we saw some flamingos and we saw crocodiles and scorpions. Just Whoa. all this stuff that I hadn't seen. Yeah, yeah. And iguanas. I mean, I had seen iguanas, but I hadn't seen, like, those other animals in the wild. Um, so that was pretty cool. And I think just, like, being able to do that with my with my dad and with, like, my friend's dads, it was, it was a really fun trip. Yeah. yeah. So. Beautiful story. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank that's, you, Joe. That's all there is to it. Okay. <laughs> and you've now seen the canal. I have. And there's a ship coming through. Perfect timing. Yeah. Thank you, Caleb, for taking a chance on me. I'd like to share a project that is making a big impact in the Chicago area, but you can donate from anywhere. It's called Weston's Fund. They seek to help defray the medical costs of parents who lose their children to miscarriage so that they can focus on grieving. It's a beautiful idea and a simple donation. You can donate at westonsfund.org. That's W-E-S-T-I-N-S-F-U-N-D dot O-R-G westonsfund.org there's a link on our webpage too theobservereffectpodcast.com and on facebook my brother and his wife started weston's fund in mundelein illinois in honor of their son 
Thank you also to Dana Boulay for the music, and thank you for listening. Keep reaching out to the unknown and others, whatever the odds. Graham Murtaugh.